Brothers and sisters, um, for those of us who are Christians and who have any experience presenting the gospel to unbelievers, we may ask the question, why is it that they won't believe? Why is it that they won't confess Jesus? You may present the gospel to unsaved loved ones, unsaved friends, unsaved family members. They've heard the gospel numerous times, and they've seen its transforming effect in your life as a believer, and yet they will not believe in Jesus, and they will not confess Jesus. Or perhaps there are those you know who are professing Christians. They claim to believe in Jesus, but they never confess Jesus publicly. Why is that? Why is it that they won't believe? Why is it that they won't confess Jesus? And this passage before us gives us insight into those questions. We find ourselves in Jerusalem following Jesus' prophetic entry. And when we recall the purpose of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, that these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life, everlasting life in his name. John's gospel was written to persuade us to believe in Jesus for everlasting life. And chapter 12, brothers and sisters, uh, aligns with the aim of John's gospel. Uh, this, In fact, the word believe repeats itself numerous times throughout the chapter. And so John's gospel presents um, this chapter as Jesus' last public call to unbelievers to believe. It's, a, it's as though the curtain has fallen on Jesus' public ministry. And then when we transition to chapter 13, it is now just Jesus and his disciples. And what's going to follow will be Jesus' public betrayal, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll go before a mock trial. He'll be sentenced to die. He'll be crucified. He will rise from the dead. He'll commission his disciples, and then he'll ascend back to the Father. So when we look at chapter 12, this chapter is all about believing. And again, it's signifying closure to Jesus's public ministry. Look at chapter 12. Look at verse 27. Here we have Jesus' prayer to the Father and the Father's response. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this person, or excuse me, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus speaks to the Father as he's approaching the end of his ministry, and the Father responds. When you look at verse 29, the people misconstrue what they hear. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him, right? So they misinterpret, they misunderstand what they saw and what Jesus was saying. In verses 30 to 33, Jesus predicts his crucifixion. 
Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. We know that was death by crucifixion. But again, the people misconstrue it. They misunderstand the law concerning the Messiah and the Son of Man. Look at verse 34. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, they only understood this when the Scriptures spoke about the Messiah that he was going to reign forever, having eternal kingdom with everlasting dominion. They had no concept of a suffering servant. And so now Jesus exhorts them to believe and to walk in the light. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Right? The light, truth, divine knowledge, the presence of God in the person of Christ, holiness. Isaiah even calls it the light of salvation. So all of these words signifying his public ministry is coming to a close. You better believe while you have the light. And yet, brothers and sisters, after all of this that he said, and even after all things that he did before them, they were not believing or confessing Jesus. So I come back to my question, brothers and sisters. Why do men and women, after they have seen and they have heard enough, don't believe or confess Jesus publicly? And again, we're talking about people even who profess to believe in Jesus. You might be here today and persistent in unbelief. Or you say you believe but you don't publicly confess him. This passage has a word for us today. And what we're going to see, brothers and sisters, is that there is a human and a sovereign explanation for that. So I want us to begin by looking at why they were not believing in him. Why they were not believing in Jesus. Look again in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, right? He had did numerous signs, right? Numerous signs in their presence, many of which they benefited from. And they were not believing in him. They could recall the signs, the miraculous wonders. And yet they persisted in unbelief, right? The the signs evidenced that he was the light and savior of the world. He was the one whom God sent. That's what he said on numerous occasions. And if we just look at the gospel of John alone, Right? There were enough miraculous signs to persuade the people to believe. Right? He changed water into wine in chapter two. He healed the nobleman's son from long distance in chapter four. He healed an invalid at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five. He he fed over five thousand men, women, and children in chapter six. He gave sight to the blind in chapter nine. 
And the, the high point, the apex of all the signs that he performed was he raised Lazarus from the dead, even though he had been dead for several days. It's, and it's interesting, when you go earlier into chapter 12, Lazarus is alive having supper with the people. And the crowds are converging because they want to hear from Jesus, but they want to see Lazarus. And then when you fast forward to John chapter 20, verse 30, right, it, it, it alludes to all of these unnamed healings and miracles, right? Healing people from diseases and disabilities and banishing demons, Right. Even even the religious leaders could not refute the authenticity of his miracles. Back in chapter 11, verse 47, this is what the ruler said. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? They could not de- de- deny the signs. The worst, the most that they could do was it attributed to the work of Satan. And yet, despite the volume and the sheer magnitude of his signs, they were still not believing in him. Brothers and sisters, the, the language is not that they didn't believe just one time, or it's not that just on this occasion they didn't believe. The language is that they were continually not believing in Jesus. They were constantly refusing to believe in him. The more signs he did, the more faithless they became. And so what do we mean by Believing in him. This is important for understanding the gospel of John, but it's also important if you're to have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, to believe in Jesus means first, you need to believe all that the Bible says about Jesus. And all that the Bible says about Jesus is what God and Jesus say about Jesus. And so what are some things just from the Gospel of John that they say about Jesus? One, John 5.18, Jesus asserted his deity in equality with God. He was equal with God. In that same chapter, he called himself the Son of Man who has the authority to judge all creation. He declared himself in chapter 6 to be the bread of life, that he alone provides spiritual nourishment for life today and life everlasting. He said he's the light of the world in chapters 8 and 9. He declared himself to be the great I am, the pre-existing, pre-eternal, self-existing God. He said, I'm one with God in chapter 10, by which they wanted to stone him on the spot. He said, I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. So you've got to believe everything that Jesus says about himself, all that the Father declared him to be, all that the Scripture says that Jesus is. You've got to believe that. And guess what? Believing that alone is insufficient to save you. Because merely agreeing with the facts about Jesus doesn't save you. You can have intellectual agreement, mental assent, cognitive agreement, and that alone can still damn you. Because even demons believe. So this mental assent, intellectual agreement about Jesus has to translate into trusting in Jesus. 
So you've got to trust in Jesus and the gospel. you got to place all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your confidence, all of your dependence on Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You, you have to rely wholeheartedly on the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. You must rely on the fact that his sacrifice is sufficient to, to pay for and atone for all of your sins and to satisfy the just wrath of God. And you've got to trust fully in the certainty of his resurrection. Because the Bible says, if, if he rose, then we're justified. We're credited with the righteousness of, of Christ. And also that we are forgiven of our sins. And it also says that because Christ rose, you and I will also rise. So you've got to believe in a literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we were to say this in summary, brothers and sisters, you have to fully trust in Jesus and fully rely on his sacrifice and resurrection, not your own merit and not your own good works. And Jesus said this, right, that that faith and trust that you place in him has to translate in a love for Christ and lifelong obedience to him. Because he said in John 14, 15, if you'll love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is where many people fall short. It's, right? There's no shortage of people who say, I believe in Jesus. Because what they're saying is, I can recite the facts about Jesus. It is, a, it is a no whole nother thing to say that you have wholeheartedly trusted in the person of Christ as well as the sufficiency of his sacrifice, the certitude of his resurrection, and I, there is nothing that I can contribute to the forgiveness of my sins or the atonement of my sins. I have nothing to contribute. I'm resting wholly and fully on the work of Christ. And because of that, I love Christ more than life and man, and I exhibit that by lifelong obedience to him. See, historically, brothers and sisters, people have believed that Jesus existed and though they deny the truthfulness of his miracles. And then you have people who, did, who accept his miracles, but they deny the truthfulness of what he says or claims to be. And both of those will damn you. Right? If I were to read to you an account about a man about a man who did many things that only God has done or only God could do, you'd have enough evidence to conclude that that man was God incarnate. And you have that right here on the pages of Scripture. And yet the people persisted in their unbelief. And people persist in unbelief today. Look at verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What this is revealing to us is that their unbelief was linked to prophecy. It was linked to prophecy. Here we have in verse 38, a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. You don't need to turn there, but you, you may know that Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings, and he was prophesying to Jerusalem and to Judah mostly. And he prophesied about judgment and redemption and restoration, the millennial kingdom, and he also prophesied about the suffering servant, the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so in verse, in uh, Isaiah 53, right, it says, who has believed our message, right? Despite all of the announcements, despite all of the direct declarations concerning the Messiah and the Gospels, right, they still would not receive the message. Later, Romans 10, 16, Paul is going to apply this to talking about Jews and Gentile rejection of the gospel. And what John is doing is he's applying Isaiah 53 to Jesus's day, and he says, who has believed the Messiah's preaching? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the, the arm of the Lord, brothers and sisters, speaks of you know, God's strength and his power and his might. And so the arm of the Lord being revealed in Jesus' day, right, it was manifested in Jesus' miraculous signs before the people. God's power, his arm, his might, and his strength revealed in the miraculous wonders and signs that the people beheld that, they sh- that should have convinced them to believe. And so John's point is this, that their unbelief was so that Isaiah 53 verse 1 might be accomplished, that it might come to pass, that God's purpose in their unbelief might be achieved. But he's not done. He's not done. Look at verses 39 and 40. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This right here is almost an exact quote from Isaiah 6, verse 10. Let's turn to Isaiah 6 really quickly because you have to understand what John is getting at here. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1, in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple, right? So the prophet Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord in the temple, right? And the point is that Right, the Lord reveals himself to the prophet Isaiah in the year that, a, that an earthly king has died. In fact, God is the one responsible for the death of this fallen king. And he wants them to see that in the midst of a fallen king, the Lord still reigns. And he is sitting enthroned exalted, lofty, and he's sitting as judge. And his robe is filling the temple. Verse 2, seraphim, these burning ones, what it means, these are created beings. They stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so you have these seraphims proclaiming the holiness of God in threefold repetition back and forth. Holy, 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 holy. It says, is 
the Lord of hosts. The host, that can be the angelic hosts in heaven. That can be the celestial hosts, sun, moon, and stars. The hosts also in the Bible speaks of the people of Israel. He is the Lord of all creation, is the point. And the whole earth is full of his glory. The fullness of the earth is his glory. The whole created order is a theater to the glory of God. Now, what do those repeated declarations of the holiness of God do? What's the effect that they produce? Look at verse 4. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The proclamation of the holiness of God produces earthquake-like vibrations in the temple. And the filling of smoke, we see that numerous times in the Old Testament, signifying the presence of God and his holiness and his glory. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, right? The, the declaration of the Lord's holiness convicted him of his own sinfulness, and he declares judgment upon himself because the Holy One of all creation has seen me in my iniquity. I can only see my own iniquity in contrast to the holiness of God. Now, the Lord is going to commission Isaiah. Go to verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people. Does that sound affectionate to you? This people, people of Israel. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, unless they might see with their eyes and hear with their hearts, or excuse me, un- hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. What is he telling Isaiah? He's telling Isaiah to go and preach. And by the way, they're not going to listen to you. Because your preaching is going to produce a hardening effect. Your preaching is a judgment on the people. And you're going to keep on preaching until my judgment runs its course. It's important to remember, brothers and sisters, also, in Isaiah 6, okay, verses 9 and 10, the Lord instructs Isaiah to preach, and it is through his preaching God is going to harden them. When you look at John chapter 12, it says that God has already done it. John sees and the people witness the fulfillment of Isaiah 6 in their day. So we go back to John chapter 12. It says... Who has believed our report? And to whom has the alarm of the Lord been revealed? And then he now supports it with Isaiah chapter 6. 
And Isaiah now chapter 6 reveals the sovereign purposes behind the people's hardening. Look at verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and heal them. So notice what he says now. The people were continually incapable of believing. It's not the same as in verse 37 where they chose not to believe. Now we see that they were perpetually unable to believe in Jesus. They were repeatedly lacking any capacity to trust in Jesus. And he explains the reason in Isaiah 6. He says that is the fulfillment that you're seeing in their midst. So, brothers and sisters, why were the people not believing? They were not believing because they could not believe. Could not believe. Right? Spiritually speaking, God hardened them and he blinded them. For what purpose? Why? So they could repent and believe? No, just the opposite. He hardened them and he blinded them to prevent them from repenting and turning to Christ. You say, well, why would he do that? That seems unjust. That seems unfair. And the reason is this, brothers and sisters. They had already made a conscious decision to harden their own hearts. So God responded by hardening them. See, God hardened them because they first hardened themselves to Christ. They had already made a decision. And now God's hardening was a judicial hardening. You see, go back to verse 37. You see, that's their conscious rejection of Jesus Christ. Despite the countless signs, see, that's human responsibility. That's human choice. That's human volition. You look at verse 40, that's God's intervention that prevents any possibility of believing. That's divine sovereignty. And therefore, because they couldn't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they wouldn't be healed, they wouldn't be saved, they wouldn't be forgiven, and they would die in their sins, as Jesus said. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. That sounds completely unjust. That's Pictures God as unrighteous, unfair. Well, this is what the Bible says in response to that attitude in Romans 9.18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens those whom he desires. This was not the, the first time that Israel had hardened their hearts, brothers and sisters. In Psalm 95, this is what the psalmist warned Israel of. He says, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, right? And he's go, he, the psalmist goes back to when the people complained in the wilderness and they tested God. And the psalmist says, don't repeat that mistake because it, it resulted in God hardening them and that entire generation got prevented from entering Canaan. What about Pharaoh? Remember him? Yeah, that dictator, that slave driver, that murderer of babies, a pagan worshiper. God promised he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But you know what Pharaoh did on his own? Exodus 8, 15 and 32 says that Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God in refusing to let his people go. Look at verse 42. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Wow. So what he is saying is that 
Isaiah 6 is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to go back there, but in Isaiah 6, in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned, his robe filling the temple, ready to execute judgment. In verse 3, the seraphim are proclaiming the holiness of Christ. And then it is Christ in the temple who commissions Isaiah along with the triune God. So what John is saying is that these things that Isaiah spoke, he spoke because he had the confidence that he was seeing Jesus Christ in the temple. And he could speak with full confidence because he saw his glory. He saw his majesty. Majesty. So why weren't they believing? Because of divine sovereignty. Because God is sovereign over the hearts of men, over salvation as well. They hardened themselves, so God executed a judicial hardening. Well, that's why people aren't believing in Jesus. What about why aren't they confessing Jesus? Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, right? So despite the unbelief of the people in verses 37 to 41, many of the rulers believed in Jesus. Wow. They believe contrary to the populace. And this is pretty remarkable, right? Because the, the rulers, this would suggest that these are members of the Sanhedrin. That would be the Jewish high court. The high court that decides all of the religious and political matters concerning the people of Israel. They were composed, com comprised of 70 persons plus one high priest. Sadducees and scribes and Pharisees. And this is pretty remarkable because several of those scribes, several of the Sanhedrin members were bitter rivals of the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly the Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees. But it says because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Despite believing in Jesus, they weren't publicly professing him to be the Christ. What happened? There was a disconnect between faith and confession. Right? So several rulers secretly believed in Jesus. They were privately believing in Jesus. You might call them closet believers. But the, the language implies, brothers and sisters, this was their pattern. This was their MO. Okay? This was their routine. They were continually silent, not confessing Jesus. They weren't like Nicodemus, who at the end, after Jesus was crucified, he participated in anointing the Lord's body. So they were continuously concealing their belief. Why? Because of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, again, these are bitter rivals to the Lord Jesus Christ among the religious hierarchy. And they feared that they would be put out of the synagogue. They refused to confess Jesus for self-preservation purposes. See, the synagogue, brothers and sisters, that was, the, that was the sacred assembly of the Jewish people, okay? So it came to be the place where Jews of various villages and cities 
came together and they would read the scripture and they would pray and that they would worship. But it also became the center of community activity, social activity, even a local court of justice. And there were numerous synagogues. And the Jewish people, especially the religious hierarchy, they loved the chief seats in the synagogues. Okay. And so they were not confessing Jesus because the Pharisees had threatened to excommunicate anybody who publicly declared Christ. All you got to do is go back to John chapter 9, verse 22, after Jesus healed the blind man and says, not even, his, not even the blind man's parents would publicly say who was responsible for healing Jesus. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, expelled, banished, excommunicated from the community of Israel. Verse 43 tells us why this was such a big deal. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That indicates to us, brothers and sisters, that their belief was inadequate to save them. It was insufficient. Insufficient. It was insufficient to receive the forgiveness for their sins. It was insufficient for them to inherit eternal life. Right? And instead of seeking to please God more than anything, they loved literally the glory of men more than the glory of God. They, they loved the glory and the honor and the praise and the adoration because of their reputation in Israel. They wanted to be favored amongst one another in their religious group, and they wanted to be favored amongst the general population. Sound like anybody today? Concerned about your reputation so you won't publicly confess Jesus? This was man's approval, man's acceptance. The idolatry of reputation is what drove them. The idolatry of acceptance, the the cult of man's favor, Jesus condemned them for this. He said in John chapter 5, verse 21, I do not receive glory from men. You want want to be a Christian? You can't follow men. you got to follow Christ. You've got to seek his favor. This is what he said in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? That's pretty straightforward. You can't believe if you're seeking horizontal glory. This is what he told the Pharisees, Luke 16, 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Paul later said, if you confess Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So then if, if this faith was insufficient, right, then what was it? This was a disingenuous, unauthentic faith. And you got to look at, brothers and sisters, when you look at the Gospel of John, you got to look at faith in its context. This is not the first example of insufficient faith. You go back to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Okay, you read that, and you go, well, good. They were believing in Jesus. They were convinced by the miracles. Not according to Jesus, verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He wasn't believing their belief. 
And because, verse 25, he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in men. He didn't entrust himself to them because in his omniscience, he was able to see into the innermost resources of man's heart, and they saw it with a, he saw it with a disingenuous faith. John chapter 8, verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. There it is again. Good. He spoke Many came to believe in him. Verse 31, though, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Okay, you say you believe, then continue in obedience to my word. See, the fruit of obedience, brothers and sisters, is the evidence of a true Christian. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So John chapter 12 is not just teaching us, brothers and sisters, about human culpability in belief and divine sovereignty in judicial hardening. It's also teaching us, brothers and sisters, about how we evangelize. You talk to a non-Christian, You ask them, do they believe in Jesus? They must believe in Jesus to be saved, but they can believe in Jesus and still perish in hell. You go further and say, okay, because you believe in Jesus, do you trust fully and wholeheartedly in his person and his work? See? And then... On the basis of that, do you have a life of obedience that demonstrates that you love Christ more than anything and anyone, including your own life? See, that's evangelism according to Jesus. So why were the people not confessing him? Because for fear they would be excommunicated because they loved the approval of men. Brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 11, I invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 11 tells us something very important for our consideration when it comes to God's judicial hardening. And in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See that? God's partial and temporary hardening on Israel is so that God might fulfill his plan to graft in the Gentiles so that they too may achieve redemption in the end. So, in light of that, brothers and sisters, Today is the day of salvation. And we have to examine ourselves and to say, am I hardening my heart toward God? Am I hardening my heart toward God? Do I solely believe in the facts, the information about Jesus, but I haven't wholeheartedly trusted in him? I haven't wholeheartedly trusted in his person, trusted in his work, and love him with all my heart. The writer of Hebrews has a message for us. And the message is, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. The scripture is giving us a warning. Do not harden yourself or risk being hardened. Moreover, the message is about also not just saying, I believe in Jesus, but publicly professing Jesus. I already read to you Romans 10, 9, but listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you publicly profess, confess me, and I'll confess you before the Father. There is no such thing as a privatized faith. You hear people today talk about my, my faith is my own private matter. That's another, yeah. According to Scripture, that's non-confession, that's unbelief. Your faith is not a private matter. Your faith is a public declaration of Jesus. So, may we be not among those who refuse to believe in Jesus or to confess him publicly. May we heed the words of Scripture, not only to believe in him, but to trust in him and to confess him openly and publicly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word, and I pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.